What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Thank you, Shelley and worship team. If you have your Bible, open your Bible, or I guess swipe your phone to Nehemiah chapter 9. We are going through Nehemiah in chapter 9 this morning. Just while you're turning or swiping there, I want to take the opportunity to invite you to come back tonight. This is not a congregational meeting tonight. This is not a family meeting. This is a meeting I've asked for. And what I'm going to do at the meeting tonight, just so you know it, is I'm going to lay out the the results and the assessment that have come from my, my interviews of over 250 of you in the church here, and how that sets the agenda for what the transition team will be doing over the coming months. So I, I hope you come, and I hope, uh, I hope you'll be here tonight to hear, hear that. We are in Nehemiah chapter 9, and I think God wants to do something pretty significant today. And the best way, I think, to introduce what God has for us today is just to go right to the first verse, but not very far into it. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. Okay, let's pause there. Let's set the setting. What month are we talking about? If you've been with us through the study, you know that they did this amazing feat, enabled by the Spirit of God, of building over two miles of wall just with their bare hands, literally, in 54 days. And chapter 6, verse 15 tells us that that wall was miraculously finished on the 25th day of the sixth month. And again, this is the Jewish calendar that they're talking about here. So that's, that's the wall is finished near the end of the sixth month. Chapter 8, which we were in two weeks ago, tells us, chapter 8, verse 1, that five days after the wall was finished... On the first day of the seventh month, the people come together. They all come together after the wall has been finished. And they hear for the first time in many, many years, maybe many generations, the public reading of the law of the first five books of the Old Testament by Ezra. They celebrate one of the feasts, the Feast of Booths. And now chapter 9 opens up here about three weeks later. The people gather together again on the same month, the seventh month on the 24th day, about three weeks. What's been going on over those three weeks? We don't know for sure, but I'll tell you what I think has been going on. I think the Spirit of God has been convicting the people of God by the Word of God. I think these people have had three weeks after hearing that day-long reading of the Word, and that is sinking into them, and they've heard the Levites teaching it, and they've been talking about it, and the Holy Spirit has been taking that Word, and as the Word is a sharp two-edged sword, He has been piercing it into their souls, revealing the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. And this has all been going on. And, 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 and it's been climaxing to the point where they come together on this day. 
And that's evident, I think, in their appearance. If we go on reading, they come wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth is cloth made of um, goats, goats, especially black goats that have that, that coarse, rough hair. It's, it's cloth made of that. It's, it's cloth that's generally used for storage sacks. But it's also used to make garments that you wear when you're mourning. It's a public sign that you are brokenhearted. So is the putting dust on their heads. So they come with visible signs that they are brokenhearted people. This is people. This is people like you and me saying, no more pretense. This is, this is people who are coming and saying, you know what? I'm just going to show what God is doing in my heart. And I am brokenhearted, and I don't care if I've got makeup on. I don't care what my clothes look like. I don't care what my hair looks like. God is drawing me by what He is doing in my, wor- in my heart through His Word. That's what I think is going on here. It's like a person walking in today that, that is being so moved by God, by what God is convicting of him as the Holy Spirit works in his life or her life, that again, there's no thought, what do I look like? Tears may be streaming down their cheeks, but they're here and they're real and they're genuine about what God is doing. Isn't that the kind of environment that we long for in worship? The laying aside of pretense. The coming before the body, that coming in worship and being real and genuine. That's what's going on here. Why were they mourning? Why were they brokenhearted? Again, it doesn't tell us exactly, but I'll tell you what I think it is. They are under conviction. They are under conviction by the Holy Spirit about, verse 2, their sins and the guilt of their fathers as they have heard the reading of the Word, as they've now had three weeks to meditate on that, that God has worked that into their hearts, they've been convicted of their individual sins, the way they have turned their backs on God and gone their own way. They have been convicted of their corporate guilt of who they are as the nation of Israel, the church of Israel, so to speak. Their church guilt they have been convicted of. And hearing and thinking about all that they've heard and God's Word has convicted them of how far they are off individually and corporately from God. And now their conviction is leading them to confession. Verse 2, they stood and confessed their sins and the guilt of their fathers. Let me tell you this morning, this is the beginning of revival. And I've said this before, the first seven books or seven chapters of Nehemiah are about God enabling His people to rebuild the wall. But what good is a rebuilt wall and a rebuilt city without people with renewed hearts living in it? Chapters 8 through 13 are about God's work and reviving, renewing the hearts of His people. And it is interesting to me, it's more than a coincidence that there is this confluence of this subject, this topic of revival for me right now. As I study Nehemiah, so clearly I see it. But even as we as a transition team, as we are looking at what this church, Central Church, was born out of, you see revival. And again, I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's very intentional on God, by God that as we're going through Nehemiah and we're looking at the history of this church, we are brought again and again to the need for revival. The need for God's people 
This is revival is about believers to have their hearts revived. I know revival is a fuzzy term, and, and we have a, maybe a lack of clarity about what it is. And there's not one right definition, but, but let me give you, as I've been studying and reading about revival, let me give you a couple definitions of revival. You'll see them up on the screen that I, that I think they work for me. They help me understand it. First one is by a, a man named Tom Palmer. Revival is a supernatural work of God as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to turn the hearts of His people back to Himself. All for the glory of God. That's what was going on in Nehemiah 9. God was using the Word of God by the Spirit of God to turn the people's hearts back to Himself for the glory of God. Or I like this this definition by Richard DeHaan. Revival is a deep moving of God and the lives of believers, convicting them of sin and shaking them out of their lethargy. Don't we need that? Don't we need corporately and individually a convicting of sin, a shaking us out of our spiritual lethargy? Or one more for this morning. Tom Tenney gets to maybe our misconceptions of revival. For years, we have thought of revival in terms of a banner across a road or over a church entryway. Real revival is when people are eating in a restaurant or walking through the mall when they suddenly begin to weep and turn to their friends and say, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I know I've got to get right with God. That's revival. That's what was beginning to happen here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And that's what happens whenever and wherever revival has come in human history. Let me share with you, there are many I could share, but let me share with you one incident of revival not too far from us, just in our neighboring state of Kentucky at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. Revival that began, this is a Christian college, so this is among believers, revival that began in their, their, their daily chapel service, their 10 a.m. chapel service on February 3rd, 1970. And it's recorded by one of the students who was there at the time, Howard Hankey, in his book, God in Our Midst. Hankey writes that that day, February 3rd, the dean of the college was the scheduled speaker that day in chapel. But as he came into chapel that day with his message, he just felt led that really instead of preaching, what he should do is he should invite students to give short testimonies about what God was doing in their lives. And so he did that. And a number of students stood to speak in various areas of the chapel auditorium. And Hanke records, he remembers, that their testimonies, they were fervent and soul-searching. And as that chapel hour came to an end near 11 o'clock, one of the, one of the professors came to the platform and expressed that any student who wanted to pray should, should feel free to come up to the altar. He didn't plead. There was no playing just as I am. There was no emotional manipulation. There was just his quiet reminder that the altar was open. As soon as the invitation was given, a mass of students moved forward. In fact, there wasn't room in that 1,600-seat chapel auditorium for everyone who wanted to pray at the altar to come, for, come up to the altar. Many had to kneel in the front seats of the auditorium. And Hanke remembers hearing hundreds of students praying out loud. 
He remembers hearing a mixture of heartfelt contrition, of, of weeping, even of joy. He writes, it was evident that God was moving upon his people in power. The presence of the Lord was so real that other interests seem unimportant. And that was borne out because the bell rang for that hour to end and for, for the next class to begin, and nobody moved. Nobody left the auditorium. The students stayed through the morning. They stayed through lunch. They stayed into the afternoon, streaming to the altar. In fact, as word began to spread around the rest of the campus, more and more students came and packed into the chapel. Yeah, occasionally there would be some students who would leave for one reason or another, but as soon as they would leave, others coming would fill their place. So that 1,600-seat chapel was packed, standing room only. They stayed through dinner and into the night. For the next 185 hours, that's almost eight days, there was a constant flow of students coming to the altar, pouring out their souls, asking forgiveness, and exhorting others to heed the call of God. Even in the middle of the night, at 2.30 in the morning, there would still be at least a couple hundred students up at the altar praying. And then each morning after breakfast, the sanctuary, the auditorium would fill back up again. The revival spread to the nearby seminary, Asbury Seminary. It spread to the churches in the nearby town of Wilmore, Kentucky. They, they canceled classes. The seminary canceled classes. The, the churches canceled services. And people began streaming to the Asbury College Chapel as the local media reported on it, hundreds of visitors from surrounding towns and states traveled to the campus to, be, to witness this. For most of those 18 days, there was standing room only in that 1,600-seat auditorium. And no one tried to compile any statistics. It was felt that, that this would be out of keeping with the spirit of the revival. But most of the students at the college and the seminary at some point during those eight days came and knelt at the altar. And there were thousands of others who came and did the same. Hanke says, the whole spiritual tone of the campus was completely changed. And I need to tell you this morning, I am pleading, I am praying for God to do that kind of work here. For God to do that kind of reviving work in this church. That He would move so deeply in our lives, individually, and as the body of Christ that He has called us to be at Central Church, that He would shake us out of our spiritual lethargy, that He would move us to conviction of sin, that He would move us to repentance, that he would bring us back individually and corporately to spiritual health and freedom. And it begins with confession. It begins with confession. That's, that's what happened in Nehemiah chapter 9. That's what God was stirring in Jerusalem as the people gathered with their tear-stained faces, wearing sackcloth with dust on their heads, moved by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Verse 2, they stood and they confessed their sins and the guilt of their fathers. Now I'm going to quickly compress and summarize 
most of this chapter for you, but I encourage you to read it later on your own. This, this, I believe, is a revival service starting here in Nehemiah 9. I see it starting in verse 5 with the leaders of the service, the, the Levites. And, and the leaders of the service, they, in verse 5, they exhort the people, stand up and bless the Lord. That's equivalent to what the dean of Asbury College did that day on February 3rd, 1970, when he invited students to give testimonies of what God was doing in their lives. And verse 6, they begin to praise God as their creator and their sustainer. And then verses 7 and following, they, they testify about God's gracious choice of them as His people through His choice of Abram. They testify about God rescuing His people from slavery in Egypt. About God leading them through the Red Sea. About God keeping them alive in the desert. About God giving them the law at Mount Sinai. The guide for their lives and relationship with Him and each other's. And brothers and sisters, every one of us could give that kind of testimony today. Every one of us has been created by God. Every one of us is here this morning. Our hearts are still beating. Our lungs are still breathing because He preserves our lives. He sustains our lives. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you too can testify that He has graciously chosen you. That He put His hand on you and drew you to Christ and saved you. And if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you can testify that He has rescued you out of your Egypt, out of your slavery to sin and the devil. You can testify that He has faithfully provided for you as He's leading you through the desert of this world to His promised land. You can testify that He has given you His law, His revealed Word that tells you how to live, that tells us how to have relationship with Him and each other. But then the testimonies make an abrupt turn in verse 16. In spite of all that God has done, they admit, they confess, our ancestors, and they lump themselves into this, acted arrogantly. Or the New Living Translation puts it, they were proud. In other words, they had the same disease that you and I have. That, that, that infection that we all have of the same spirit of self-will that, that, that tricked Adam and Eve into believing that first lie. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can, you can be in control of your life. You can determine what is right and wrong for your life. And in that pride, overcome by that arrogance, they became stiff-necked. And they did not listen to your commands. They did not obey your commands i got to tell you, the, the phrase that stuck out to me over and over the last two weeks was this phrase, stiff-necked. It appears again in verse 17. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And it's not up on the screen, but, but verse 30 also sp speaks about how they stiffen their necks. And when I see something in a passage appear over and over again, I know that God is trying to get my attention. Our attention is something to bear down on. And so I, I want to spend just a couple minutes because I think it's crucial to what God wants to do among us this morning. What does it mean that they were stiff-necked? What is that image? Where does that image come from? What does it mean for us to be stiff-necked. Well, digging in a little bit, that image comes from their farming culture. 
And in that farming culture, when you were plowing a field, you, you had your plow pulled by an ox or sometimes by two oxen, a yoke of oxen. How do you control an ox? You control an ox with an ox goad. And an ox goad was a long stick that had an iron tip on it. And believe it or not, a staff member at this church had this dowel with a nail on it in the back of their car. I won't tell you who it is because you don't want to make them mad if you pull up behind them. I've also thought this would be really good. You know, if anybody on the... Whoop, nope, nobody's behind me this morning. The choir in the first service, anybody falls asleep, you know. But uh, how is an ox goad used? Well, think of it. You are a solo farmer, and you have an ox or an oxen pulling your plow. You have one hand on the reins or whatever those were called. How do you get that ox to speed up? You take your, you take your ox goad, and you lightly prick the rear end of the ox. You're not trying to torture the animal. You're just trying to get its attention. But even more importantly, how do you get that ox to turn? Let's say you want to take the plow to the left or plow to the right. You take your ox goad. You still have your reins in one hand. You take your ox goad in your other hand, and you lightly prick the side of the neck of the ox, the side that when you want it to go the opposite side. What do you do if your oxen is starting to curve off course and going to make a mess of your furrows? You take the ox goad and you press it on the opposite side of their neck. A light prick is all it takes for a responsive ox to correct its course, to get back on course, or to turn the way that you want it to go. Well, that is a wonderful picture. And that is the picture, that is the illustration that the Bible uses to describe how God guides you and me by the Holy Spirit. God, when He wants to lead us to do something, often the way He does it is He brings up a thought in your consciousness, a slight prick of the ox goad. Go to that person. Pursue reconciliation with that person. Help that person in that area of ministry that they need. Whatever it may be, you've had those thoughts come into your mind. And maybe you let that thought go and flitter away, but, but it'll come again. That's, that's the Holy Spirit as the ox goad pricking you slightly to bring into your consciousness what it is that God wants you to do. Maybe you've had the negative kind of leading where you are on a course that is like that oxen taking the plow off course. You are going in a direction and what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking, how you're acting, that is off course from what God wants you to do. That is apart from His Word. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit pricks you with conviction. You read something in His Word and it pricks you. You hear something in a sermon and it pricks you. You read something in a Christian book. You have a Christian friend come to you and gently and lovingly prick you that what the way you're going, what you're doing is, is, is out of God's will. That is the loving hand of the Father using the ox goad of the Holy Spirit to lead you, to convict you, to guide you. That's the image behind this image of stiff-necked. Now let's get to stiff-necked. What happens when that oxen feels the prick but doesn't respond to it? And that would be known to happen where the ox, maybe it's, it's, it's been pricked enough and it, and it doesn't want to go the way that the farmer wants it to go. So what does it do? The, the, the Hebrew word literally means it hardens its neck. 
You have to press harder and harder into the neck. It stiffens the neck to the prick of the ox goad. What happens when we feel the prick of the Holy Spirit nudging us to do something, convicting us of sin, and we ignore it? We become increasingly stiff-necked. An ox that won't turn for the farmer, when the farmer pricks its neck with the ox goad, that's an ox that's hard of neck. That's an ox that's stiff-necked. That expression, therefore, Moses and the prophets used to describe people, you and me, when we're not responsive to the leading, to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, when we have a stubborn, self-willed spirit, when we don't heed the Spirit's prompting, when we, when we brush away conviction of sin, that's what we're doing. We're, we're stiffening our neck. We're hardening our neck. And what happens when we do that over and over? There's a second image here, and we see it in verse 29. This after discussion of more that God did. God bringing them into the promised land and again blessing them abundantly in the promised land, but them still ignoring Him. It all culminates in verse 29. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. What does that image of turning a stubborn shoulder describe? Well, there are oxen that, uh, that at least at that time increasingly resisted the, fa- the, the farmer's leading by the pricking of the ox go to the point that they got so obstinate, so defiant, that when the, the farmer would attempt to put the yoke to, to attach the plow onto the ox or the oxen, that ox would stiffen its shoulder, would not allow the farmer even to put the yoke on. There's a powerful image, both for Israel and for you and me, particularly if you think about the yoke as the yoke of God's Word, of, of God's boundaries, of God's revealed will for how we're to live. When we repeatedly resist the Holy Spirit's prompting and convicting, we can get to the point where we become so stiff-necked, so stubborn, so self-willed that we turn a stubborn shoulder to the yoke of God's Word. That it doesn't matter what God's Word says. I, I want to do it my way. I'm going to go my way. This is what Stephen in Acts chapter 7 condemned the Jews for when he said, you resist the Holy Spirit, you stiff-necked people. This is what Paul talks about when he speaks about grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. We ignore Him long enough. We resist His promptings long enough when we are like that oxen trying to throw off the yoke of His, of his law. What does God do when those that He loves, the nation of Israel, you and me, when those He loves become stiff-necked and turn a stubborn shoulder to His Spirit and His Word? We see that in verse 32. They speak of, they're convicted of the hardship that has come upon us. He allows hardship into our lives. He allows the natural consequences of our stiff-neckedness, our stubborn shoulders, of our self-willed spirit to fall upon us. Not because He's punishing us, but because He loves us. And here's the beginning where they recognize this of true conviction and repentance in verse 33. You have been righteous, they say to God, and all that has come upon us. You know, it is just and right that this hardship has come upon us. We brought it on ourselves, in other words. For you have dealt faithfully 
and we have dealt wickedly. They recognize that all the hardship that has come upon them is the just consequence of their stiff necks and their stubborn shoulders. Let me ask you the question this morning that I've had to first ask myself. Are, Are you feeling the pain of hardship right now? Hardship in your family? Hardship in your marriage? Hardship in your broken relationships with other believers? Or corporately, are we feeling the pain of hardship in our church right now? He allows us to experience that pain not because He's harsh, not because He's punishing us, but because He loves us. Proverbs 3.12, the Lord disciplines those He loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom He delights. Hebrews 12.10, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Discipline is not about punishment. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, all your punishment has been dealt with at the cross. Discipline is about God as a loving Father saying, I want to get you back on course. I want to steer you back from the hardship of the consequences that you have brought upon yourself by your stiff neckness and your stubborn shoulder. Jews of Nehemiah's day, they came to the realization that all the hardship they were suffering from their Babylonian and Persian captivity, it was ultimately caused by their stiff necks and their stubborn shoulders. This is where their confession begins as they admit what's going on in their hearts. And as they do that, as they confess, finally they're ready to hear the good news. Verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 30, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. When we confess, when we finally lay aside pretense and we humble ourselves and we turn back to the Lord who we've been stubbornly resisting, we don't find an angry God ready to punish us. We find God to be gracious and merciful, abundantly compassionate, unwilling to give up on us, ready to forgive us because He steadfastly loves us. That's what we just sang. Oh, how He loves us. That's why He never gives up on us. What does it look like when we confess? What does it look like when we acknowledge the areas of our lives and our relationships where we are stiff-necked or we are turning a stubborn shoulder. Well, here's what it looks like. Just some glimpses among the students at Asbury College during that February 1970 revival. Howard Hankey writes of the students coming forward. He writes, Many prayed and wept with deep emotion and afterward came to the platform to make apologies to those whom they had wronged and against whom they'd had resentments. Some made their way to individuals in the congregation to ask for forgiveness and to make restitution. Old enmities were melted with the fervent love of God. Could this happen in our church? Could God do this kind of work by His Spirit in such a powerful way that confession and forgiveness would break out among us like this? Hanky describes how the impact of the revival even changed marriages. 
He said it was a common sight to see married couples holding hands and walking down the aisle to kneel at the altar together. After renewing their love for God, they would rise with tear-dimmed eyes and embrace, experiencing a renewal of their love for each other. When we confess to each other, to our spouse, the ways that we have been stiff-necked and turned a stubborn shoulder to them, God can not only heal the marriage, but bring about a revival of a marriage, a freshness that maybe has never, ever been there before. Hanky summarizes those 185 hours like this. Day after day, the campus community was absorbed in only one thing, getting right with God and seeking His will. And again, I, I struggle with the, the passion behind it. But this is what I'm praying for in Central Church. This is what I long to see in Central Church. Now let me, before I close, there is one last way that we can become stiff-necked. And I, I want to warn you about this before we close. I want to mention it here. We can hear a message like this and we can think of somebody else that we know that we think is stiff-necked or turning a stubborn shoulder. And we can think, I hope they're hearing this message. I hope they see their stiff-neckedness. And let me just use the words of an evangelist, Rodney Gypsy Smith, who really, I think, brings it into focus for me and hopefully for you. You want to know how revival comes? Draw a mark all around yourself and ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark. Revival begins with me. It begins with each one of you. Confession begins with me. It begins with each one of you. How do we close this morning? You know, you might expect me at this point to, um, you know, call the worship team up and have some, some prearranged music and, and, and give some kind of strong invitation, but, but I keep coming back to how it was done at the beginning of the Asbury College revival. There was no pleading. There was no emotional manipulation. There was just the reminder that the altar was open. And it was all left to the Holy Spirit whose hearts He was stirring. And so I can't manufacture anything this morning. I can't create any kind of emotional climate in your heart. All I can do is, is appeal to the Holy Spirit to do the work in the hearts of those of us who He wants to work in and tell you just very simply the, the altar will be open. So the altar here is open if you feel the pricking of the Holy Spirit to come and pray or to come and to confess or to come and make reconciliation or to come and get right with God. But let's pray. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to bring revival, beginning with each of us, bring revival upon Central Church. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your Holy Spirit. I thank you for how patient you are with us. We're, we're just like the Israelites, Lord. You bless us in so many ways, and we, like the oxen, we wander off course. And we often stiffen our necks to your prompting and your conviction. And often we get to the point where we even turn a stubborn shoulder. We shake off your word that you're trying to convict us with. And Lord, again, I don't... I don't attempt or believe I can create any kind of climate or revival, but I ask for revival. I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us, would fall upon this church, would bring about 
Revival beginning with confession, individually and church-wide, Lord. So do the work that you desire to do in this church today and in the coming days and weeks and months. I pray this, that your church would once again glorify you. In Jesus' name, I pray.